0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creator. If
1: you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. And as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business. And One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Hello,
0: everyone. This is Tom Fox. Today I have back with me fan favorite Michael Volkow. Mike and I take a deep dive into the Fresenius FCPA enforcement action. We take a look at the background facts. We take a look at the bribery scheme. We take a look at the investigative and remediation steps that the company took. We consider how it obtained the frankly stunning result of a non-prosecution agreement and even a 40% discount off the low end of the range under the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. It's a fascinating exploration of one of the most eagerly awaited and significant FCPA enforcement actions in 2019. Finally, the FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox, back with Mike Bullcall for another episode. We're going to break down the Fresenius FCPA settlement for you. Mike, uh, first of all, welcome. Well, thanks, Tom. Happy
1: uh, Happy Monday to you.
0: So, Mike, last week we had another major FCPA case that's been in the wings and wind for quite some time, Uh, the Fresenius case. You want to start off uh, by giving the background on it?
1: Yeah, we saw uh, Fresenius Medical, which is the largest supplier of dialysis equipment and services, uh, agreed to pay $231 million to the Justice Department and the SEC, and they resolved uh, FCPA violations in 17 countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. Uh, interestingly, Fresenius came up with, uh, with DOJ, came up with a non-prosecution agreement. They agreed to pay $87 million uh, and uh, the reappearance of another corporate monitorship, this for a two-year period. Uh, and then a third year, they have a self-reporting requirement. Then in the SEC enforcement action, again by administrative order, uh, Fresenius agreed to disgorge $147 million uh, or so and uh, to disgorge uh, all of that. So according to the uh, settlement, they Fresenius paid approximately $30 million in bribes over a 10-year period in a number of countries, a lot of West African countries. Uh, which I'm not gonna go through all of those, but uh, also including China, Mexico, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, uh, Serbia, Spain, and Turkey. And they earned approximately 140 million from its corrupt bribery payments. Uh, Quickly going through the FCPA corporate enforcement policy factors, they got credit for voluntary disclosure because it was disclosed in a timely fashion partial credit for cooperation. They had a very thorough internal investigation. They made factual presentations. They reported on witness interviews, produced documents, translated the documents, complied with foreign data privacy laws. But they didn't get full cooperation credit because they did not timely respond to requests by DOJ. And at times, they did not provide This is the language, fulsome responses to requests for information. Uh, They also implemented uh, remedial measures, including removal of 10 employees who were involved in the misconduct, some of whom were at the senior level. Uh, They enhanced their compliance program controls and anti-corruption training. They terminated business relationships with third-party agents and distributors who participated in the uh, misconduct and they put in a sort of new third-party due diligence program. Um, And uh, one factor the DOJ noted was that some misconduct in, I think one of the countries continued to occur until 2016. And that's why that appears to be one of the primary reasons for the appointment of the monitor. Um, So after weighing all of these factors, um, you know, they came out, I thought, Tom, um, pretty well with a non-prosecution agreement from DOJ, and then they got a 40% discount from the bottom of the U.S. sentencing guideline range. Uh, and then they received credit for the SEC payment of $147 million in uh, disgorgement. So overall, I thought it was, you know, given the breadth of the conduct, the, t- the length of it, uh, the number of countries involved, and for how long it went on. I thought Fresenius did pretty well in the end here with uh, the settlement. What did you think?
0: So I agree with you wholeheartedly, Mike. Uh, they did uh, very well. I guess one of the things I wanted to explore with you on this podcast was, is this is now a seri- uh, one of a series of cases we have seen since the uh, implementation of the FCBA corporate enforcement policy are uh, announced by Rod Rosenstein in November 2017. And is this really where we're going to be going in the future in terms of a lighter touch on the charging documents and uh, perhaps greater credit given for um, cooperation, remediation, self-disclosure, even if it's not full and as extensive and robust enough to merit a declination the um uh so perhaps we can we can hold those questions until the end i thought for did uh very well in achieving the npa uh, but i was also struck by by uh the amount of detail in both the non prosecution agreement and the sec cease and desist order that is extraordinarily useful for the compliance professional in terms of the bribery schemes Because in addition to sort of the standard, oh, let's just pay on a sham consulting contract or through a third party uh, uh, surreptitiously, we had some pretty interesting bribery schemes here that uh, people were clearly going out of their way to create a structure that would be hidden from the corporate office and perhaps even the compliance function. Uh, to hide the money. So in, in our best Watergate fashion, perhaps we can uh, follow the money in some of these. Yeah, that's,
1: that's a good point. because, And I think for the compliance practitioner, looking at each country and the statement of facts provides kind of a checklist of, you know, standard areas that we've seen where there's uh, third-party f- you know, funding and bribery schemes. But then your point, Tom, which is they, they were also, be candid, uh, some schemes that I've never seen before, and maybe there's, it, it's worthwhile for compliance people to take a look at the specific facts, and, and it's in both the DOJ statement of facts and in the SEC's um, uh, factual presentation uh, as well. So, like, one of my favorite countries, because I I worked on the Halliburton uh, case, Tom, as you know, is uh, Angola. And, for example, in Angola, they used bribery payments to an Angolan military officer and a government-employed nephrologist. Uh, And one of the ways, and this is actually very common that I've seen in Angola, Is to give equity interests to government officials through joint ventures, or not specifically the government official, but a family member, Um, you know, somebody close. So here uh, they had a joint venture, uh, and there was sort of there was approval by Fresenius's management, but it turned out that they hid the fact that part of the joint venture shares were owned by a government official. But in Fresenius, they, for example, in, the, in Angola, they contracted with a son of a military officer for warehousing space that it never used. Um, so, uh, you know, to me, Angola and equity interests always go hand in hand. To look, uh, look, and maybe it's from the oil industry days and operating, you know, agreements and things in Angola. But it just seems to me to be a common means by which uh, government officials seek to get money. They hide their their equitable interests. So I thought that was kind of interesting in terms of uh, one of my favorite countries,
0: that being Angola. (laughs) You're the only person I've ever heard uh, Angola being one of their favorite countries. Well, I think,
1: you know, for my days with Halliburton working on that case and I, you know, it was a five year case and I got to learn you know the ups and downs of the oil industry, and that just Angola is obviously known for its uh, oil. But you also mentioned, Tom, that there were other tech. You know, there were some other techniques that were used, and like for example, in Saudi Arabia, they were doing. You know, they were cashing employees' checks as a way to fund uh, cash and bribery in a safe. Bribery money that was kept in a safe in Saudi Arabia, which is, I mean, I've never heard of that
0: before. Um, that was something new, I don't know. So that was interesting, Mike, because think about the sophistication of that. You have the a check being issued to an employee of a local distributor, properly made out at least to that local employee. That local employee uh, cashes it, and that local employee immediately turns that money over to the general manager of, The distributor, the uh, so much money was generated uh, that literally uh, bags of cash were kept uh, in an office safe. Apparently, Um, so that's I mean that's almost akin to some of the bribery schemes we saw in uh, China with uh, GlaxoSmithKline and Eli Lilly, where you had literally an entire business unit in on the on the corruption, but. in addition to uh, that, there was two others that I specifically wanted to, to raise up to discuss with you because I thought they were very interesting. In addition to kind of we had charitable donations to a government officials charity. We had uh, fraudulent gifts, travel, and entertainment, but there were two, and the first was a collections racket. And the collections right. was a standard collection uh, you know, of outstanding obligations, uh, something that uh, third parties do on a routine basis, something that companies do on a routine basis. And it was so routine that the company had their own collection department uh, within Fresenius, but they uh, subbed out the uh, collection uh, to a third party. And whatever monies apparently were collected through this collection effort, that was used uh, to pay a bribe. Yeah, that that was
1: really interesting because also, Tom, it was, as I recall, it was there were commissions paid on the collections and a portion of the commission payments went to like a relative of a government official. I mean, talk about having to dig down in your due diligence, right? You'd have to go sort of two to three levels down to capture this, but um in the healthcare industry, and I would imagine the, the collections here, you know, because obviously dialysis is a high volume type of uh, business. Uh, you know, it's not like each session, dialysis session is worth, you know, hundreds of thousands, but it's really, uh, that that was really intriguing to me how, or how creative they got in terms of getting money into the government officials' hands. And I think This was – they won certain tenders from the hospital because
0: of this arrangement that they had, which is Uh, incredible. Yeah, there's one other one that intrigued me a little bit uh, as well, and that was payments to customs officials. Right. Um, And I raise it for two reasons, Mike. The first was they specifically cited a – Payment to a customs official of $3,200 to expedite um, a medicine or products across the border. And we've only had one other case where uh, the customs payments were in that range uh, of $3,000. So at first, I thought, well, this might be an actually an interesting discussion around facilitation payment, because if $3,200 is too much, um, You know how far down... You have to go to make a legitimate facilitation payment under the FCPA, but then, uh, as you read further in the non-prosecution agreement, it turned out that they made over one point seven million in total payments, uh, corrupt wow. payments wow. through the customs. Uh, this customs. Uh, broker and customs pay uh, to customs officials, and whatever $1.7 million is, it ain't a facilitation payment. So gotcha. it really speaks to the need to look at your total amount of facilitation payments because I think probably you and I could come up with at least a plausible argument that $3,200 in an appropriate set of circumstances could be a facilitation payment, but there's no way you could justify uh, north of $1 million total. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And like you and the thing is, you'll see like, um, you know, five hundred dollars in in brokerage fees. OK. In an invoice. And you, you know, if I presented that to you as a client and said, Tom, does this look reasonable to you? You'd go. Yeah. But then on the other hand, if you ever ask me, well, what's the total volume that we're dealing with this person? And it turns out to be a million dollars. You'd say, whoa, whoa. You know, let's take a, de- a second look at that. So that's a good point. There was the one. Uh, there was one time I wanted to run by you as well because it kind of uh, another one that sort of struck me because it kind of reminded me of you know we've been talking about the uh, the uh, telecom uh, ventures and the MTS one recently and the sort of Eastern European or the Kazakh or the Uzbekistan schemes. But uh, in Turkey, for example, Fresenius gave a doctor a 35% interest in a joint venture that was worth, they said, $74,000, and then they purchased the shares from the physician, and the physician earned a $356,000 profit. So again, you know, just like uh, you know, purchasing the interest from a government official, here you have a physician who's clearly a government official. Uh, and it's another way to fund a huge amount of bribery, I mean, you know, two three uh, hundred $356,000 in bribery through what probably looked like, you know, just a normal transaction, you know, tr- uh, purchase uh, transaction. So, you know, look, uh, uh, criminals can be creative. And, uh, you know, I think the whole case itself just gave us a variety of Schemes that we've seen, um, you know, in different contexts, but also what you're pointing out is some other areas that are a little bit different and that we have to watch over. You know, that these are new areas that people are creative when it terms of trying to get money in people's hands. There are lots of ways that a business can do can do it if they want to do it.
0: And, and to follow up on that point, there's Mike, there's one other bribery scheme utilized that I'd like to raise. And that was uh, one of the schemes used in Spain. In addition yep. to gifts, travel, and entertainment abuse, sham consulting agree- consultancy agreements, there was one, uh, three paragraphs referenced. One, the purchase of a doctor's practice. And it was unclear to me uh, whether these doctors were uh, state-owned uh, employees of a state-owned enterprise, but it specifically mentioned the purchase of their practice. And then, uh, not simply the purchase, but also that they allowed the doctors to uh, maintain ownership of the building the practice was in so that Fresenius actually made an additional payment to the doctors for rental space. And it struck me that both of those uh, might look like legitimate business expenses. And certainly if if you own a, a medical practice uh, to prescribe your products in Fresenius and that's, excuse me, in a country and that is not illegal, uh, you might not ever look at to who are you paying uh, rental space for. So it really speaks to the need for a compliance function to be robust and have review of literally everything up and down both the sales chain and the supply chain.
1: Yeah, it. it I think it also goes to what you're, you know, the volume of transactions for this business was, is so large that you really have to have kind of a pro, proactive auditing strategy. And I think if you did like transaction testing in these countries and started to, you know, regularly pull transactions and look at the documentation and go down and dig down deeper, some of these may have been caught. And I think it's just a reminder to me on, you know, the need for robust third-party risk management, but really sort of the cutting-edge area, I think. And, and I know on your uh, innovation podcast, you've had some interesting discussions about data analytics and transaction testing and things like that. To me, this is a perfect case where, given the volume that we're talking about, That some of those strategies that you've been discussing with people in terms of proactive uh, monitoring strategies are really critical uh, in in, in an industry like this in particular.
0: Uh, so, Mike, uh, lots uh, for the compliance practitioner to digest in terms of bribery schemes. But now, perhaps we can go to some uh, some larger questions. Um, are there any uh, any other points that uh, you thought were important from the compliance practitioner, perhaps from a macro perspective?
1: Yeah, I uh, and I always look for you know guidance on. Um, you know, the basic requirement that a compliance, uh, chief compliance officer have adequate, you know, independence, adequate resources and authority. And I thought here there was a note early on in describing the facts before they got to the specific countries where DOJ and the SEC both alleged that there were inadequate resources uh, devoted to compliance and, um, uh, you know, given Fresenius' uh, risk profile. Um, and in particular, they, when noting some of the problems in Saudi Arabia, they pointed out, uh, the government pointed out that there was not a compliance officer located in Saudi Arabia, given the uh, given the uh, risks. And I, I think that, you know, as people sort of wrestle with the issue of how to design and implement a global compliance program when you're in a lot of countries, some of which are high risk, uh, that there are circumstances where you really do need to have a local compliance officer with boots on the ground Uh, and you can't rely upon a region or a global office to sort of manage those risks. And I think DOJ, I always am looking for this in, in terms of tea leaves And I think that they're getting more and more towards saying to people, you need to have the resources uh, allocated, particularly in the high-risk areas. So I I thought that was kind of important. Um, And I do – you mentioned early on, Tom, your your sort of question about is this the light touch. And um, this does seem like a light touch, but it also may reflect – that Fresenius, you know, even though they were a little deficient in their cooperation, I I suspect they were pretty um, forthcoming. They had a lot of countries to sort of manage and report on. um, And it was a a global type case that could have been a lot worse. So maybe they were, they did a real good job in terms of, uh, you know, gathering as much information as they could in a timely way.
0: And then, um, I guess, Mike, the, the third point uh, was uh, perhaps not directly related to Fresenius, but in terms of the uh, both the um, physical document of the non-prosecution agreement and the Securities and Exchange Commission's cease and desist order, I saw a lot of detail and a lot of information um, really laid out, both in terms of the law, the facts, jurisdictional arguments, how they were able to hook it all in, and uh, uh, perhaps just greater transparency is is the phrase I'm struggling with. Yeah, no, I I, I
1: think um, you know it's been uh, about a year and a half now with this system, uh, with the the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, and I I feel like uh, you know we're getting more and more data points, and uh, it's clear that we're going to be living with this framework for a while and I don't think it's going to change so I mean we're we're starting to get more certainty and I don't think it's going to vary that much I mean it'll maybe to us it will as practitioners in this area but I think in general people are going to get more and more reliability as to how to do this
0: so any uh, kind of uh, final thoughts on this, uh, Mike, as we wrap up this episode? Well, I um, I would
1: say this, Tom. You know, I think 2019 so far has been a pretty, you know, pretty busy year for FCPA enforcement. Um, uh, this, you know, we're not like off to a slow start. If anything, uh, we're off to a fast start. And it'll be interesting to see as we head into sort of the second quarter here uh, how things how things look.
0: So we had uh, Cognizant Technologies, we had MTS, and now we have Fresenius. These are three cases that have been out there for some time. I think all of us were um, interested to see when uh, they would be settled. But I guess the thing that's striking me, uh, Mike, is that the, the information that's being presented to us, I think, really helps the compliance practitioner understand the bribery schemes that are used, but also is pointing towards greater certainty in the fine and penalty you'll sustain if you do make the difficult decision to self-disclose and uh, go to to, uh, uh, try to obtain a declination under the new corporate enforcement policy.
1: Yeah, I think that I I agree wholeheartedly, and I think we'll see an uptick uh, if we haven't already seen it in terms of people taking advantage of self-disclosure. I just think uh, they're creating more certainty around it. And the benefits are such that, um, you know, the light touch on the corporation with, you know, a focus on individual prosecution, um, it just seems like the uh, more and more companies, I think, will take advantage of it. I don't think it'll be, you know, like overwhelming, but I do think at the margins we'll see more cooperation and self-disclosure.
0: I agree, Mike. Well, as always, it's been a fascinating exploration of a case that uh, just literally came out last week. So we'll have to see what, as you said, what Q2 brings us. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, everybody. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Sorry for the audio quality on this episode. Mike Volkoff and I have both been running multi-part blog post series on the Fresenius FCPA enforcement action. Mike did a three-part series last week, which you can check out on his site, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. I'm running, looks like, a six-part series. I've really got carried away on this one because I think it's really important and really instructful for the compliance practitioner. So uh, right now it's six six parts, but who knows where it'll go. It may even go longer than that. But anyway, it will certainly give you a deep dive. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.